welcome to this conversation. My name is Jonathan James and I'm a trustee with the Finzi Trust and I'm both delighted and honoured to be joined by Robert D. Gower. I've always wondered what the D stands for. Can you divulge? Uh, David. Oh, excellent. Okay. Uh, by Robert, who has been, well, in the position of chair for almost 25 years now, but his actual connection to the trust goes back 40 years ago to 1981. That's right, isn't it, Robert? That makes me feel very young. <laughs> That's the right response. Let's go back to when you were even younger then, when you first connected to Finzi's music. I would imagine, was it through the organ loft? Because you were an organ scholar at Lincoln College, Oxford. Not at all. No. I mean, I grew up in a musical desert called Suffolk. Uh, and there was nobody else doing A-level music at my school. And there were no other young organists. And so it was only when I went to study at the Royal School of Church Music in 1970 that my world began to have some sort of proper frame. Everybody kept telling me I was good, but I had no yardstick by which to measure myself. And, and then I found myself in a room uh, with, sharing a room with James Lancelot, who went on to be organist at Durham, uh, and Paul Spicer, and one other musician as well. And, Paul's enthusiasm was unbridled, and I think he set me alight, really, and I owe him a lot. And at that stage, he was exuberant in his uh, praise of her, the music of Herbert Howells, and so we devoured that together. And uh, James Lancelot was extraordinary. He went on to be organ scholar of King's, and we would practice and sort of boxing gloves and snowshoes sound James never played a wrong note. That was the difference between us. So I learned an awful lot in a very rapid time. So how did it develop from that early friendship with Paul uh, to actually going out and discovering Finzi's music firsthand and, and meeting his family? Well, I suppose it was really the fact that I played music that nobody else did, um, partly because I couldn't play it and partly because it didn't really speak to me in quite the same way as music which wore its heart on its sleeve. And if I think of the organ world, I'm thinking about the music of Percy Whitlock, which I've had a lot to do with. Uh, and so I discovered more and more about Percy Whitlock. And then I can't remember how I came across the music of Gerald Finzi, uh, except there were Lyrita LPs. And I must have heard a track on a Lyrita LP and got it. And then I got more. And then I read a sleeve note which said there was a biography of Finzi uh, in preparation. The sleeve note was by Diana McVeigh. And, and so I wrote to her, and eventually I had a reply. And as a result of that, Paul and I went to meet Joy Finzi. I think that would be probably 1978. Well, at this juncture, can we bring in your first disc? Because we've decided, haven't we, to structure this conversation along the lines of desert island discs. I thought that would be rather fun. Can you tell us what your first choice is? So we're going to start with the music of John Ireland, and this is the part of the slow movement of his, his piano concerto. And I think... Although I have a musical affinity with uh, composers who have a personal musical voice, I'm not sure I would have warmed to them necessarily as people. Uh, this is Constant Lambert writing about John Ireland. He's an almost pathetically sensitive human being, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. When he writes like he does in the slow movement, I can hardly bear the poignancy of it. And I think it's that harmonic uh, subtlety which really got to me 
perhaps because I played so many hymns in the Methodist Church when I was a teenager in it. That was an excerpt from the Lento Espressiva, the slow movement from John Ireland's Piano Concerto in E-flat. A complete discovery for me, I have to say, and I'm just wallowing in those poignant harmonies. I read somewhere, Robert, that he was influenced by Prokofiev's third piano concerto before writing this. Can you hear a Russian accent in what he writes? Um, not particularly, because I associate him too much with the English pastoral scene, I suppose. I mean, Ireland was a strange man. He had, and one would like to know much more about this, a marriage which lasted one night with uh, a pupil. Uh, and, and that was that. I think he was then a confirmed bachelor, as they say, thereafter. So one would have perhaps wanted to have been a fly on the wall, or perhaps <laughs> not. Um, but uh, he's so evocative, his music, and it has so associations which are so redolent of the Sussex Downs where he lived in a windmill. Really? So quite a colourful character. Yes. A, a brilliant organist. And uh, he started off by writing organ music. And in fact, that was the first publication I did was to put all his organ music into one volume for Novello. But then he sort of renounced the organ and didn't come back to it until the very final piece that he wrote in his life. Uh, which is like a sort of a keyboard enigma variations. It's a scrapbook of all his musical memories and features. Da, 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 that little turning phrase from the piano concerto that we've just heard there. It seems to me that you have a very clear and direct connection to his music and his harmonic language. Is that true also of Finzi? Uh, yes, it's very true of Percy Whitlock, and it's certainly true of um, Gerald Finzi. And the thing about Gerald Finzi is that he consistently surprises. Uh, you've got this uh, very lyrical Bachian sense of some of his music, and then the really sort of biting dissonance that's also around. Let's go back to your connection to the Finzi family, because where we left off in the story was you just met Joy. Paul and I went and had tea, Russian tea with Joy. Russian tea as in the drink? Oh, yes. And no milk and, and sort of subtle, dark flavours. Excellent. <laughs> uh, and this was taken in her cottage in, in Berkshire by a sort of a log fire. It was just one of those moments which one doesn't forget. You know, the smell of the wood and the brick floor and the crackling of the wood and Joy sitting there, this tart, dark, willowy figure very imposing and uh, very kind, very interested. And we were then, I mean, 1978, I was 26. Paul was just the same age, slightly older. Um, and we said to her, look, the thing about Gerald's music is that we hear it on the record. We never hear it in the flesh. It's never broadcast. 
uh, it's going to be 25 years in 1981 since he died. And we think there should be a festival. And Paul at that stage was director of music at Ellesmere College in Shropshire. And so he had the facility at his fingertips, as it were, to put on some sort of residential weekend. And that's what we did. And uh, that was really the start of everything. It was certainly the start of our formal association with the Trust. Uh, Joy asked Paul and myself and Andrew Byrne, who'd uh, been at the University of East Anglia and been to see Joy, had written about Gerald. Uh, she, she asked the three of us as young men to join the Trust. And that was a step of faith and a half. But it didn't half change things over the next 25 years. And it must have changed the Trust itself as well, because... I read that in its early days, it was basically the family, the Finzi family, plus a few other uh, honorary members. Is that right? Yeah, a trust was set up in 69. The trustees then were the family, plus um, a lawyer, Tim Simon, uh, plus Jeremy Dale Roberts, who was a close family friend of both Nigel and Kiffa Finzi, and Diana McVeigh, uh, who was the biographer. And how about Howard Ferguson? Was he on the oh, trust? Sorry, that and, and that's Howard Ferguson. I should mention Howard, but you'll hear some of his music later on. I'm looking forward to that. For me, both uh, the works that are uh, part of your selection that aren't Finzi's were, as I said earlier, complete discoveries, and I'm, I'm delighted about that. So thank you already. Let's go on to your second disc. You've chosen something here that is, I expect, familiar to many Finzi lovers. Yes, this is an example of Finzi's lyricism. The carol from the five bagatelles. As an associated board examiner, I've sat through performances of this, which I wish I'd never been at. <laughs> I'm sure you have. This is one which is rather better uh, and shows off the melodic invention of Finzi, underpinned by a simple harmonic structure. Quite a lot of these bagatelles are built on a simple diatonic scale, aren't they? Do you think that was a deliberate device or idea or rationale on his behalf? Yes, I suppose carried to its extreme in the final one, uh, the Fugetta, where although it's in C major, it's fiendish if you're a pianist uh, and the scales fly around. Uh, I've always struggled with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back to the quieter world of the carol. Robert, have you ever been tempted actually to put words on this carol or to set it in some way for a choir? No, I haven't, I'm afraid. But I, I, what I did do uh, was to find that somebody had put the pictures of Eric Revillius uh, to accompany uh, the Bagatelles. 
um, and that's a stroke of genius. And it was really through Joy Finzi that my eyes, and I think Paul's as well, were open to visual art in all its forms. And that's very much something that Gerald and Joy had established as their modus vivendi, particularly when they were looking after artistic uh, refugees, as it were, in the war, Second World War. And that spirit of hospitality seems to be something that has very much defined certainly Joy's outlook on life. And you and Paul and the other early trustees have benefited from that. I get a sense of a very warm hub of artistic activity, of which I'm rather envious. I read about vermouth being poured... uh, (laughs) liberally and and fish pate and and all sorts of jolly japes i'm not sure you would have taken so kindly to the fish pate when it was sitting in the passenger seat of your car at nine o'clock in the morning i see joy did not hold back on the garlic um and uh, she didn't necessarily put the stuff in a fridge so it had a life of its own <laughs> but she was kindness itself and uh a most extraordinary human being you know she was her own person very independent and a strong creative force, a poet, uh, an exhibited portrait artist, the painting uh, drawings in the National Portrait Gallery, uh, one of Vaughan Williams, one of Adrian Bolt, notably. And one of Robert Gower. Uh, I'm sitting in a room where there's an unsigned, unfortunately, uh, half-completed picture, but there are enough curves in it for me to realise that she's caught my chins. <laughs> Wonderful. Do you think you would have been quite so enamoured with Finzi's music if it weren't for Joy? Oh, I don't think she had anything to do with the musical side of things because he had his arrows shot straight to the heart. But when I talked about John Ireland not being necessarily the most approachable and likeable of people, I can only say that my impression is that it was Joy who kept the show on the road in the Finzi household looked after the children, looked after the hospitality. And Gerald would retreat to his study where he had his 9,000 books. uh, And he would shut the door and expect not to be disturbed. And I think that's quite a a tall order to uh, impose on a wife who herself was gifted creatively. It sounds an interesting tension there and certainly would have demanded a lot of patience and belief in Gerald's calling. Um, I want to return to the 80s now, your first decade with the Trust. You mentioned the 25th anniversary at Ellesmere College. That was the start of many other festivals. Could you tell us about that and perhaps some of the early recordings uh, that came under your auspices as a Trust? Well, we uh, at that stage, I'd moved from uh, St Paul's School in London to Radley College in 1982 Um, and Paul had his own work, his own musical department at Ellesmere College. Andrew Byrne was working at that stage for the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra and the organisation of musical festivals is a huge operation uh, from the creation of a programme to the booking of artists to the stage management and As time went on through the 90s, I realised that I just didn't have the space. And Paul, who at that stage had then moved to take over the BBC Music Department in Birmingham, neither of us had the time which was necessary to continue uh, beyond the last festival we held, which was in 1990. And you all know that, uh, because you were a a pupil at Radley, that um, 
Uh, the other festivals were held in Oxford and Radley at three yearly intervals. I remember them fondly. I mean, the, the extraordinary range of artists that we had uh, and people who were willing to come and do things for not that much money. We weren't paying full professional fees. We were paying fees, but they were um, charitably calculated by the artists, by and large. And we just about broke even. And it was a struggle because the world still was not as much on side with Gerald's music as it is now. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you were, I suppose, buoyed up by the enthusiasm for the general British music scene at that stage for these festivals. Uh, but do you feel even in that audience that you had to advocate, especially for Gerald's music? It was getting the audience there to uh, show advocacy. That was the problem. Right. I mean, Joy had this wonderful phrase when we first met her, uh, talking about uh, Boozy and Hawks and Gerald's music, because uh, they are his publisher. Uh, she talked about the black hole of the archive, the black hole of the archive. And, and she felt that things just went there and disappeared for good. And so our challenge, really, when we joined the Trust was to get the music into print and available. And then gradually, over the years, we managed to get it digitally secure. Uh, and we've built a very good and enthusiastic and uh, profitable, in every sense, working relationship with Boozy and Hawks as a result of that. Now, I'm sure one of the pieces that you didn't have to advocate too strongly for was the next disc. Can you tell us about that? Well, here's an example of uh, Finzi's best-known piece in a recording uh, which uh, was made or brought the piece to prominence uh, conducted by Kiffer, the composer's son, and with the tenor Wilfred Brown, uh, Dies Natalis. And uh, this came about uh, as a result of a cycling visit that Gerald Finzi made in 1929 and visited the church of St. Wendrida in March and saw these huge angels in the Hammerbeam roof towering and peering down. And it struck him so much that he went and sketched through Dies Natalis, which is a five-movement solo cantata for high voice. And you've picked the fifth movement, the salutation. Why is that? It's, uh, again, if you're an organist, the uh, comparison with um, the chorale preludes of Bach, think of something like Vakatav, um, the salutation here, it's got this striding flow, striding bass. You can hear the strings at work, plucking away, and a lyrical cello line over the top, and then this soaring, uh, gentle, always inflected um, in the rhythm of the words, uh, vocal line. And again, it's all to do with a thing we shall talk about, doubtless, the passing of time. These little limbs, these eyes and hands, which here I find, this panting heart wherewith my life begins, Abyss, my new made tongue. 
thousand, thousand years Beneath the dust did in a chaos lie How could I smiles or tears Or lips or hands or eyes or ears perceive which I now receive. That was the salutation from Gerald Finzi's Dies Natalis. We're on the third disc so far. And with that, we've reached his first maturity as a composer, really, haven't we? Yes. example of uh, the completely different side of Finzi. Um, still Bach, perhaps, in the sense of Bach chromatic fantasy um, and uh, huge chords uh, and strident dissonance. Um, this is the Grand Fantasia and Toccata. Uh, not a well-known piece. And again, uh, not a well-known piece rather like uh, Fort St. Cecilia. The vocal piece because the orchestral demands are so huge and therefore so expensive so it doesn't get performed and this will be your fourth disc i noticed just talking about how he uses the orchestral forces that uh, they don't come in until about six minutes into the fantasia and when they do it's almost like a surprise it's um, a thunderbolt isn't it yeah yeah absolutely and at in this Fantasia in particular, and the Toccata, we're hearing a very different face of Finzi, not just Bach, but something almost Revelian. Yes, I, I, but it's, the, it's this really sort of unyielding dissonance. It's like the song as a lunar eclipse, where, uh, you know, you just find yourself struggling at times to pinpoint a tonal centre.
an excerpt there from the Grand Fantasia, proving that Finzi was not just a pretty pastoralist. And I can imagine that just resonating through the Albert Hall in its proms performance must have been a very grand affair. Robert, we've got up uh, now. Just, just to say, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it, that, that was perhaps to be part of a piano concerto, but the piano concerto was never completed. The epilogue with which we began, that was to be the slow movement. fair to say probably that uh, mastering his language in orchestral terms took him a lot longer than perhaps the writing of songs. Uh, although he was no great pianist, and that's where Howard Ferguson comes in for me. Um, he had met Howard Ferguson at a prom uh, during a performance of a Strauss, uh, the Alpine Symphony, and I think the, the, the wind machine fell down and they were screaming with laughter and ran into each other, and, and that's how their friendship began. Howard, uh, uh, it's a bittersweet relationship, really, because Howard was gay, uh, and Gerald didn't really come to terms with that. Uh, and there was a period of ostracization, really, um, before a, a, a rapprochement in, in the later years. Swains come enter, holy, fair, and wise is she. The heaven such grace did lend her that she might admire it be. It's surprising, isn't it? Because I don't think you can tell that he wasn't comfortable at the keyboard in you look at his accompaniments, and certainly we've just heard how adept. Uh, the writing is for the Fantasia and Toccata. Well, I think, yes, I, th I think that a lot of the uh, skill in the accompaniments is down to Howard's uh, taking a sort of pumice stone and refining what had been put forward. That's what we're told. Um, but Howard, you see, was uh, a bachelor uh, and a scholar. I mean, he did immense amounts for the Associated Board in editing Beethoven, Schubert, Chopin, uh, and uh, he published books on keyboard style, um, France, Italy, Germany, and England. So to find him produce in the work we're going to hear here, the piano concerto, uh, to find a work of such tenderness and lyricism is perhaps a surprise. One might have reckoned on something slightly more academically conceived, but this is a, just an outpouring of the spirit. And it's rather like uh, Gerald and rather like Ireland. They were able to say something musically that they couldn't necessarily express in terms of their personality and their dealings with other people.
that then an excerpt from Howard Ferguson's Piano Concerto from the slow movements theme and variations. What a treat. Thank you, Robert. I have enjoyed preparing uh, this podcast, not least because you've uh, introduced me to different faces of British music around this time, very fertile period of the 40s and onwards. Um, Let's dive back into the history of the Trust. Uh, I want to pick it up in the year 2000, and by this stage you've got quite a few important recordings under your belt as a Trust, and you're considering a blue plaque Indeed, and uh, we didn't succeed with that. Um, We managed to put a plaque on the house in Harrogate where Gerald lived with his mother before they moved south when he was very young, when he was still studying with Bairstow at York Minster. And we managed to put a plaque on the house in uh, Hamilton Terrace where he lived, uh, near Lord's Cricket Ground. Uh, But that was a yellow plaque. That was a Greater London Council plaque. So we still don't have an English heritage plaque to Finzi. There are plaques now on the house uh, that he lived in, he had built in Ashmansworth, opposite the church. So there is some sort of, something of a Finzi trail to be had. And part of that trail surely must be the Whistler engravings. Indeed. Uh, The Ashmansworth uh, memorial to Gerald Finzi is a window to English music in which the trunk is engraved HP, Henry Purcell, and then you've got all the roots of the centuries and then all the composers coming as branches out. It's a most wonderful conception. And that is the work of Lawrence Whistler. Uh, And he is another artistic association uh, with the Finzi family, and I met him through Joy. And as a result of that, he engraved a panel to George Butterworth, uh, which stands in the concert hall at Radley College. But the thing that sets Lawrence apart is his ability to freeze uh, sound, as it were, in time. And so uh, he hadn't heard a note of Butterworth's music, for instance. But on being presented with a recording, within a week, he came up with a design which perfectly encapsulated Butterworth's life, uh, tragically cut short in the First World War. And in the window to English music uh, at Ashmansworth, uh, there's something about it which conveys the breadth of Finzi's interest, because Finzi, remember, was also an editor of 18th century music that is still in the library of St Andrews University. Uh, And there you'll find John Stanley, Capel Bond, and Richard Mudge. Mudge was the name of one of our border terriers, and a very good name it was too. Uh, but he was passionate about 18th century editions. I just want to note here that Robert has a fine line in border terrier names, or in fact, dog names. I remember, I think it was a spaniel who was named Palestrina back in the day. So you have a fine pedigree there of composers being um, commemorated through your dog names. Indeed, Palestrina was a law unto herself. <laughs> she was. Commemorated in a hymn tune called an Itzalap, which of course is reverse Palestrina. <laughs> well, we digress. I want to go back to this theme that you've touched upon here about the meditation on the passing of time. Tell us about the sixth disc in that respect. 
Well, here we have a setting of Shakespeare, Fear No More, The Heat of the Sun. Uh, and I've never heard this sung uh, more intelligently than by John Carroll Case. Uh, it's got this gentle sort of 6-4 rhythm, uh, simple compound time, and fear no more the lightning flash, nor the all-dreaded thunderstone. Uh, it, John had a way with consonants which brought that to life. Lightning flash, or the all dreaded thunderstone. Fear not, slumber sends your rash. Thou hast finished joy and And then rhythm stops and we go into a quasi recitative uh, and the words have a simple speech rhythm over static chords set in B flat minor low down in the keyboard so there's a tone color there Finzi very much a master of tone color and if you're hearing John Carroll Case when he gets to nor no witchcraft charm me it's magical it sends the hairs up on the back of your neck no Finzi was very conscious of his own mortality, uh, something he shared in common with, with Thomas Hardy. That's perhaps why there are so many Hardy settings. The passing of time uh, is something which bubbles to the surface constantly in his work. So that was Fear No More, The Heat of the Sun, number three from the set of songs called Let Us Garlands Bring, inspired by the words of Shakespeare, of course. His Opus 18. I persuaded one of the singing teachers at Radley, Jonathan Rathbone, who'd been a swingle singer, to make an arrangement of that for Four Part Choir. And we sang that at the memorial service to Peter Cook, who was an old Radleyan. Peter Cook has in... Uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Uh, and it is a piece which really deserves a much wider uh, circulation in the context of a memorial, in my view. It glows, doesn't it? You mentioned the 6-8 rolling time frame of it, but there is something about the harmonic language as well as the simple yet effective vocal line that sets it aglow. And the chord spacing. And I think chord spacing is perhaps an area in which Howard 
Ferguson will have had an input. Howard Ferguson, again, one of Finzi's friends, but not without uh, a, a troubled nature. I just It makes me think about your connection to Finzi over the years, over these past 40 years. How would you say that your connection to him, uh, or rather to his music, has changed? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think it changes as one's life gradually unfolds and you see things in a new perspective yourself with the passing of the years. I think you identify with the same sentiments that uh, Finzi identified with. I'm thinking particularly of his sort of watchword, um, shake hands with a good friend over the centuries is a pleasant thing. And I felt that with the trust as well and the appointment of trustees since my time uh, who have been of by and large a younger generation, not exclusively so, uh, and they carry on the work just as Joy had invested confidence in Paul, Andrew and myself to take the trust forwards uh, and plough new territory. And I hope we've replayed that. I mean, the, as I say, the music is in print. The recordings, which initially the trust had to fund, then gradually became self-funding, which was good news. Um, and then you touched on... 2001, which was the centenary year. And so we set up from 2005 uh, with the first awards in 2007, a scholarship scheme, uh, which has been going on annually since that time. And the range of activity covered, relatively little um, connected to Finzi, but the topics reflect his breadth of interest and his encouragement for other artists. So, for instance, uh, I mean, we've made an award to a tap dancer. Um, uh, we've made an award to a Salvationist who wrote a book on the history of the Salvation Army and its music. Uh, we've made an award to somebody uh, who is a house musician, house music, creating a secular Christianity for the gay diaspora in the USA. Now, I wonder what Gerald would have thought about that. <laughs> Time has, has certainly moved on, hasn't it? Uh, but the spirit of enthusiasm and uh, the eclecticism of the scholarship programme, I'm sure would have appealed to him. I've personally really enjoyed connecting with these scholars and, and listeners can find some of the scholarships reflected in, this, uh, in the shorter podcast that we've been doing this year to date. Just so. to tell you this, another one, uh, Mountain Hair, composition for chamber group. I mean, Finzi, who lived in the country and adored the country, would have been very pleased with that. I'm sure he would have. I get the sense that the scholarship programme is one of the initiatives that you're most proud about. Is that is that right? Well, I'm very pleased that, you know, Finzi has been able to have a transformative effect on the life of others, just as my own life and Paul's life and Andrew's life has been transformed by meeting Joy and then the way things have unravelled since then. And to feel that that's... Uh, uh, an ongoing force for the encouragement of those who would otherwise struggle to make their voice heard or seen uh, is uh, is a good thing. And while we're looking forwards, what specifically does that mean, do you think, for the work of the Trust? Well, the Trust has received a very great kindness in a legacy from Jean Finzi, who is a distant relative in the family. Uh, and her house in Mortlake 
was sold and the proceeds passed to the trust and her funds have been invested. And that will allow the trust to continue to support the work of young musicians, something about which she was passionate. So that if you're under 25, then you're eligible for consideration for uh, assistance if a project is deemed worthy of support. Um, and for the rest, uh, the, the royalty income which the trust receives presently from um, sales of music and from recordings, broadcasts, that will cease by and large from 70 years after Gerald's death, so 2026. And the aim is to put enough money by between now and then to enable uh, some resource, albeit on a sort of a much smaller scale, to continue to underwrite the causes which uh, the Trust has tried to sustain over the past 40, 50 years. Well, I know that we as a board feel a great debt of gratitude for what you, uh, in your role as chair, but also for what the Trust has been able to achieve over the past 40 years. And we've uh, been left with rather large shoes to fill, I have to say, on that. We're about to get to your final disc, Robert, but before we do that, I'm, I'm just going to ask a typical Desert Island disc question, which is, were you to be marooned? <laughs> Which of the six discs so far would you choose to be with you on that desert island? That's a very hard question. Um, I mean, the very first disc we heard has a particular resonance uh, in that uh, the daughter we lost, um, Philippa, uh, played this uh, concerto um, and this movement. And so that has a particular affinity. Um, but the disc that we've to finish with, uh, which is Finzi's very last song, uh, which was sung by Ian Partridge so memorably at Joy Finzi's memorial in 1991. Uh, that really says it all. Uh, it's Finzi Concentrate and uh, unsurpassed in its simplicity, sincerity, and sheer sense of matching words and music. Well, let's let that have the last word. Robert Gower, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Since we loved the earth as soon as we kissed fresh beauty too love hath been as poets pay.